Hollywood. This is Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. I'm pleased to be joined today by Scott Feinberg. Uh, he is the Hollywood Reporters co- Awards columnist and the host of uh, the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter podcast. It's a great podcast. He, he gets to talk to like actual A-listers. It's very exciting, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the the chat with um with, with to chat with all these guys I, and 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 women i'm very i'm very you know i'm almost a little flustered i'm like in the in the <laughs> the, the afterglow of greatness here but i i really appreciate you being on the show today cuz i want to talk about the business of award season you know people we we at home we sit here and we watch the golden globes and the oscars uh, and it's fun for us and whatever, and it's kind of an interesting, you know, who who is the best and who's. But it, it's a real business. There's a real business aspect to this. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about the scandal first. Big scandal right now. Hollywood. Well, can I just center? I just yeah, have yeah. to interject. You're excited to talk to Hollywood. I'm excited to talk to to you guys. I am the biggest fan of the Bulwark and Charlie's podcast and Tim oh. Miller and you. So oh, this man. is exciting. Yeah. See great. now they're gonna they're gonna have the biggest heads now. This is the worst. <laughs> this is you've really sunk me here. Uh, no, but I that's that's it's it's good to hear that. It's good to hear that. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about the big the big scandal right now. Yeah. Uh, and we are taping this. Before the actual uh, the the Golden Globe show, which which took place on Sunday, this this will go up after that. Um, but the the uh, L.A. Times and uh, and you uh, have been reporting on the fact that a there are no black members in the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which kind of kind of shocking, uh, yeah. all things considered, considering how much sway the Golden Globes has. The HFPA, of course, is the parent organization for the Globes, um, and. Uh, there are all sorts of ethical quandaries that the the organization has found itself in financial, fiscal, um, and and frankly, just almost outright corrupt. I mean, I, I feel comfortable saying that after the Emily and Paris thing. Sure, I think just to first, if I can, just set it up a little bit uh, in terms of the the history. This is an organization that's about you know seventy some odd years old, and it was founded because journalists from abroad. We're in Hollywood trying to get access to movies and stars, and we're not able to do so. And so they banded together and said, what if we give out awards? Maybe they'll be a little more cooperative with us. And sure enough, from the very first Golden Globes, which was held on the Fox lot, that has achieved its its purpose. But over the years since, money has obviously entered the equation, uh, particularly in terms of TV rights. And so this group of otherwise, you know, kind of misfit journalists has suddenly acquired a lot of power, a lot of influence and, um, and has kind of gotten a little big for its britches, I think in a number of ways, going back to the sixties and seventies when they were kicked off the air for a few years because of kind of questionable voting practices that, you know, in the wake of the, the quiz show scandals, the networks knew we better steer clear of these guys. So then they came back a little bit. And then in the 80s, you had this famous, they called the the Pia Zadora scandal, where this best newcomer award is given to somebody who nobody's ever heard of, basically. And that caused another wave of trouble, along with the fact that you were having at one show, for instance, three ties uh, uh, but with three winners, um, in, in a specific category, then two categories where there were two tie, like it, it was implausible that this was legit. And it was more about if you show up, we'll give you an award. And, um, you know, so it seemed like in the last few years, 
as the TV revenue from their deal with NBC started to go up a lot, they were cleaning up their act a little bit because they they were literally the spotlight was on them more. And so uh, it seemed like they were getting better. But then this year it just went off a cliff where they're nominating for Best Picture Musical or Comedy this movie Music that which is controversial because of its subject matter way it handles mm-hmm. autism, but it's also at twenty six percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a terrible movie, and so people were saying, "What's that about?" The TV equivalent was Emily in Paris. How could this have happened? And so, yeah, I mean, it turns out that with most of these things, they've been kind of wined and dined and traveled and all kinds of stuff in ways that no real ethical media outlet would ever permit. Which is part of why you look at they don't put out a list of who all their members are, which itself is a little suspect. And then, you know, they do have a few people who are eminent historians and people like that. But if you're working for like, if I were to be invited to join the HFPA, I couldn't. And on top of my, my day job as a, as a Mm -hmm. journalist, because who, what, what reputable media outlet is allowed to accept uh, or to allow their, their people to, accept these kinds of things and then cover the the same studios and talent that that do this and and all of it. So, I mean, the the thing is that nobody has a huge incentive to change because it's worked out great for the members of the HFPA, especially at a time when journalists are struggling to make ends meet. These guys probably in particular, you can't sell a George Clooney interview in the uh, you know, abroad in the same way that you used to or things like that. So, um you know, it's great for them. To, they, we found out they're get they're paying their own members to do basic, you know, moderating press conferences and stuff that it's just absurd. Yeah. Um, so that's part of. I mean, it's just this cascade of stuff that. But at the bottom line, as, as I was saying, why should they change if it's great for for them? And why should the studios and and talent stop working with them because you know it's the third most watched award show there is after the Oscars and Grammys? It's great exposure for their talent. Um, it's really going to come down to whether or not the FCC, I guess, or or NBC or somebody decides to intervene here because otherwise everybody's kind of benefiting from it. Yeah, I mean, like, let's just let's just dig into some of the specifics here because I do think that there there is something you know people people say oh well you know the the members might be getting a little bit of money for you know hosting uh, roundtables or whatever right is that really that big a deal but it's not it's not a little bit of money we're not talking about a small chunk of change here. Yeah, I mean, they're apparently they're, they're and this all came out in this this last week's LA Times uh, kind of expose that I guess they got access to some of their tax documents and stuff. And uh, you know, first we should we should say the HFPA is a nonprofit yeah. <laughs> organization. Yeah. So to then you know to then be paying their their six officers or something you know six figures each and to be. Um, paying past presidents a thousand bucks a month to serve on a history committee, you know, in case anyone ever needs to ask what happened back in 1981 at the Golden Globes or something, even though we now have Google and YouTube and all that. Uh, And then they're paying, you know, the, the thing that the HFPA does is they kind of rope talent into showing up to give them a, a special screening and press conference where the talent shows up and then nobody but HFPA and the talent are there. And most of the time they're roped into, kind of doing like a hand uh, a rope line like handshake and photo with each member and it's all this stuff which they wouldn't do if these guys weren't in the HFPA they wouldn't give them 5 minutes if they weren't in the HFPA um and you know to moderate those press conferences which you would think is maybe part of the rotating job of being a member they're getting paid thousands of bucks as well so that's all that's all weird 
Um, but you know, it's 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 just very strange behavior. And the way it's made possible, though, for them to be throwing this kind of money around is that they recently, a few years ago, renegotiated their TV deal with NBC and are now getting something like I think it's a sixty million dollars, maybe. Uh, a year, I believe I've got a, don't quote me on that, but I mean, it's huge, huge money. Mm. And so, you know, on the one hand, I, I think that for many years they were not, they were not bringing in, they had gotten themselves into a TV deal that was bad. And so now they've suddenly been able to cash in probably what their ratings ju- justify. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's all a little, it's all a little shady, more than a little yeah. shady. Yeah, and and you know we should uh, we should note that this is as you say the studios here uh, have their own part to play in this and are, are perfectly happy to play along because you know it's not like they have any incentive not to you know be feated with awards and to be to have you know accolades showered upon their films. Um, do you think that there's? I mean, do you do you think just from your perspective as as a person who covers this beat in particular that the the studios have a greater responsibility to kind of not play ball here? I mean, what, what do you think they should be doing? I mean, in a, in a ideal, in an ideal world, you know, all Academy members would watch every movie that they're supposed to be right. seeing before they vote. And all HFPA members would return all the gifts that they get and all of that. But this is show business and people, you know, it's it's goes back probably to P.T. Barnum that you do what you have to do to get attention for your project. Um, you know, nobody, as, as we've said, nobody's forcing the studios to send these guys gifts or travel them or anything like that. I think they look at it as a marketing expense that if it could pay off in in multitudes if they get the nomination or the win, which gets them that national exposure uh, and and helps. It's a big beat on the way to the Oscar voting, which is what they really care about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, sure, it would be nice if they if they did the right thing. But it's one of these things also where, like everything else in award season, if somebody starts a, a screening series or a Q&A series or, you know, a podcast now, you know, it becomes a thing where people say, I don't know if this really helps, but if I don't do it and we don't get the nomination, then somebody can say to us, why didn't you do that? And, you right. you know, that would have been the difference. And so as long as, you know, it is the kind of thing where, and I think the LA Times article quotes somebody saying this, that, you know, if the studio heads and the network heads got together and said, you know what, we're done. Next year we're out. The the Golden Globes would be gone in, in a minute. But, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think that that's something that anyone – is eager to do and particularly the optics from the side of journalism you know like these guys ostensibly are journalists at a bad time we know when journalists have been under the gun and you know their argument is look we're if we're doing if we're paying our members and stuff like that it's because it's become harder and harder to make a living as a journalist in hollywood and we have the money so why shouldn't we take care of our people um And, you know, they do do some good things. I think they've taken a page out of the, I don't know if it was Rockefeller or whoever, where the the Robert Barons were getting Mm -hmm. such bad press that somebody, you know, they said, just donate some money and people will like you. And so these guys now give away a a huge amount of money each year to organizations, including the Los Angeles Press Club, which I'm a board member of. And I think, you know, we certainly appreciate that. And we, you know, what we, it wasn't to us, it was for us to distribute to journalists who were hit by the pandemic. So stuff like that, you know, is certainly good, but it cannot blind people to the, um, the more, 
ethically uh, questionable things. And and I think in the long run, the best solution would be for the HFPA to sort of recognize in the same way that they now say, we realize we need some some black members. Well, yeah, I mean, you should have figured that out before. I don't know if they've, I don't know yeah. if they've ever had a black member ever. Yeah. We we're trying to establish that. Um, but you know, they should just police themselves that if you have literally blind or deaf members who have been in there with lifetime memberships and are still voting because they're just, you know, maybe you should put them into inactive status. Yeah. Maybe you should not turn down people from, from, more reputable outlets who want to be a member of your organization because, I mean, they're, they're literally being sued at the moment by a, a journalist who says, hey, I'm from Scandinavia. I am a reputable journalist. I want to be in the HFPA. I'm, I'm based in Hollywood. I write for a reputable publication overseas. She's alleging that the reason they won't let her in and the reason they block other members from joining their club, which is only 87 members strong mm-hmm. at this point is because they basically are secretly colluding to be territorial about regions of the world so that if there's someone in Norway and Finland right now, they don't want somebody from Sweden because it would right. make it harder to sell their articles in those regions. So it's like, what are you actually about? Are you about journalism and and reputable coverage of the industry? Or are you about protecting 87 you know people from uh, from from having to give up some perks and having a slightly harder time maybe selling articles. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it is crazy to think about the Golden Globes is essentially, you know, these awards that everybody, like, argues about and, you know, kind of puts wagers on even, uh, you know, picked by 87 random people who we don't know who they are. It's 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 ludicrous in a, in a way. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, like, George Clooney, maybe it was, or Robert De Niro, Robert De Niro I think, got in trouble where um, – he got their life. He was given their lifetime achievement award a few years ago, and uh, I believe it was on that occasion that he basically he's up in front of the the audience at the Golden Globes, which includes a lot of their members. Some of them are not able to be in the room because, but whatever. And he he basically said like like Ricky Gervais when he hosts, like other people ridiculed them to their face. He said like. I recently, you know, I ran into a couple of HFPA members. I said, didn't I see you last night at Il Piccolino? Like, you guys are the waiters, the rest of the, you know, these are not like, it's not like we're talking about Roger Ebert. These are, these are not like kind of journalists who move the needle in any way except by being members of the HFPA. So it's a very weird dynamic. Yeah. So what what you're saying is I need to get in on this racket, you know. As, I as think so. You know, not, okay. I got. I'll, I'll figure this out with my people. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll get we'll get on. The, uh, so I I you know I I, I do I really enjoy uh, the podcast series that you you do around award season time because like I say you, do, you you get you get big names and you get them to talk and 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 look I mean I don't want to I don't want to go into this and sound like a naif. But talk openly, and and I, I feel like there's a there's a there's a you know often a real conversation and a real familiarity. And I want I, I was I was just hoping you could talk a little bit about your interview style, how you how you prep for these things, you know, how you kind of. Uh, I assume you have like a whole team of bookers, you know, reaching out to publicists and stuff. But uh, you know, uh, you know, you're shaking your head, shaking your head, no. So you you're, know, if you're <laughs> you're looking at the team, uh, no, I appreciate. First of all, thanks for listening. I I don't. You know, you never, you never know uh, how it's always. It's the thing that I love. I'm now like five plus years into that podcast called Awards Chatter, and it's been the most challenging, but also the most gratifying part of my job because, you know, the benefit of being 
uh, an employee covering awards at the Hollywood Reporter is that it's basically one of two trade publications, us and Variety, that uh, have covered the industry since the silent era. And so it's just sort of uh, ingrained in the community of people who are who work in the industry that, you know, you read these papers, which are now weekly magazines, used to be dailies, you go to their websites. And, you know, so we have a built in advantage in the sense that the people who are who who awards contenders and their backers are trying to reach, they know that that they can reach them through us. So with that, I felt like I had heard about, you know, podcasts were just starting. I thought I get each year for, for as long as I've been doing this, I realize I get a disproportionate amount of access to the people who are in contention, who otherwise, to be honest, wouldn't be talking to me or anyone else if they mm-hmm. could avoid it. But they they come out of the woodwork when they want to court voters. So I knew that I have these this access and I, I really tried to make the most of those interviews pre-podcast. So I thought, what about why not why not try to expand this into the podcast? And what I found, thankfully, I had a few it's really comes down to publicists. They that's the thing in Hollywood. They make this town go around. So if they trust you that you're not gonna be a jerk in the sense of like, I, I actually don't care about who somebody's dating or, or mm. if they once, you know, 20 years ago had a overdose or something. I, I'm just making up random, you know, things that they might be concerned about. We're here. I, my model as a, as a kid, I loved inside the actor's studio with that guy, James Lipton. He was a little silly and they made fun of him, whatever, but he did a ton of prep and you basically walk through somebody interesting's entire life and career in an hour as much as you can. And so that became my model. In fact, he ended up being one of our guests. Um, and it's just every, so somebody who's in the running for an Oscar, an Emmy or a Tony, or in some way affiliated with a project that's in the running for an Oscar, Emmy or Tony. And I, I just read, I take a one a week we do. Uh, and I, read uh, there's a list of sources i could give you but everything that's been written about them ever by those sources mm-hmm. i've generally seen the projects so that's less the amount of work but um yeah i think it they gen- they also are so accustomed in this business to doing junket style interviews where you go and you have 5 minutes and you say the same talking points to 50 people in a day so they actually i think kind of like when they are able to have an actual conversation and have you know, questions that force them to think back about their own, you know, journey and kind of puts it all in perspective. A lot of times they'll, at the end of it, like we just had Gary Oldman as this week's guest. He's like, basically like, wow, where do I, should I expect the bill for my therapy session or something? Because it's, it's, you know, you go through a lot of stuff in a short amount of time. And, uh, but I, I love that. And what's also exciting is that sometimes because of the nature of what these contender projects are about. Sometimes we get weird access to people I never thought I would. So like we had Hillary Clinton on the podcast in connection with that Hillary Hulu docuseries. Mm -hmm. We had Al Gore when they Mm -hmm. had the Inconvenient Truth sequel. We had Buzz Aldrin or Kobe Bryant or so I, I, you know, to me, it's just whoever I'm interested in spending not only that hour talking to, but a week prepping to talk to them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that that's that's an intense amount of prep. I mean, I I I frankly cannot often muster that much for for some of my for some of my guests on on the show. But like it 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 really is it, it when when you are uh 
well, I, let me ask, what, what, what are the sources that you, that you go through sure. as like, what are you, who are your trusted go-tos? Like, these are the, the outlets I need to read. These are the writers I need to read to understand who, uh, or uh, what is, what is working and what is not working. In sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's LA times, New York times, Hollywood reporter variety, uh, deadline, which is another it sort of joined those two as one of the big ones out here. Um, interview magazine, vanity fair, uh, NPR, where they have actual transcripts if these people have done a long-form interview there. Um, the Guardian actually does some pretty good long-form stuff sometimes. Um, and then I will Google if they've had cover stories just by other outlets. So some like with somebody like Gary Oldman, I think you wind up with like Esquire or GQ or Playboy sometimes did really – they used to in particular do long-form mm-hmm. Good interviews. So I'm one of the few people here who's actually reading Playboy yeah, sure, for the interviews. Yeah. I think I've got, I've actually got the Playboy director's interviews book behind me somewhere yes. on this shelf. So it's, it's, it's a, really you know, good. It's real, real journalism. Yes. Yes. So, you know, you just end up with a folder like, like this and, you know, it's daunting every week when you sit down with it, but the truth is you, you kind of, uh, it's worth it when you can find even if it's just one little gem that you didn't know before. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's valuable in terms of just structuring the conversation mm-hmm. where I, sure. I try to write the question so that the answer will, I have anticipated what their answer will be so that it leads into the next question. But if they, but that I'm familiar enough with their story that I can dance in a different direction if they, if they go somewhere else. But if I can get them to, you know, kind of, I, I have a guy, the, the, the team of this podcast is me and this, this young guy who's my uh, recorder, editor, we call producer, um, and this guy, Matt Whitehurst, who I've worked with for a while. And what we do is we kind of have this kind of like look at each other, you know, take an imaginary shot every time somebody says, you know, I can't, where the hell did you find that out? Or how did you know that? Because most people actually don't do much prep at all. They kind of wing it, um, which is fine. I know we're all busy. But the thing is, if you find that gem, it can make the entire interview. So just to give you one, you know, not earth shattering example, but one that comes to mind immediately. We had Jennifer Lawrence, who at the time I would say was the biggest star in Hollywood, come on. And, you know, again, this is somebody who in promotion of her bigger movies does a million interviews. They're shorter interviews, but, you know, everything becomes a story. Yeah. I had I had interviewed her before she kind of blew up when she had done that her first notable movie like years ago called Winter's Bone. Sure. And so I had some stuff from that. But then I had also found some random article where she had talked about at the time she was kind of blowing up with the Hunger Games, the first movie. Um, you know, she was saying, oh, I, this my life now kind of sucks. I'm being I can't go to, you know, uh, the store without paparazzi, you know, chasing me and all this stuff and basically feeling sorry for herself. And then on Christmas for the first time of what she now does every year on Christmas, I guess she went in her home state of Kentucky to uh, a children's hospital and they were excited to see her because she was Katniss from the Hunger Games. And she was brought to meet this one young girl who had been, who had survived a a terrible house fire Mm -hmm. and was burned all over her body. And it was, you know, just looking at her was, was so upsetting. Yeah. And this girl, basically, this is a young kid said something to Jennifer Lawrence, like, you know, I don't feel bad because like you, I'm the, I'm the girl on fire or something, which was the, what they call the character in the sure, Hunger sure. games. And she 
broke down crying and it opened up a whole different train of the conversation with Jennifer Lawrence, just talking about more honestly, yeah, look, there are trade-offs. It's a wonderful, there's a wonderful, you get paid a lot of money, people are excited to see you, all of that. On the other hand, you have a responsibility when you're, uh, you know, there are people that look up to you and um, and it was important to her to just anytime she feels sorry for herself, she thinks about that kid and says, you know, shut up a couple of years ago, you would have given anything to be in this situation. And, and look, now it actually, to some extent, does matter what you do. So I know, you know, it's a little corny, but it, I think it was a genuine reaction from her. So um, it was just, you know, you want those genuine uncanned moments when so much of what comes out of their mouths are yeah. canned. Do you do you ever have folks like kind of shut down on you when you when you try and do this because i this is always uh uh, it's always i i don't have nearly the range of experience interviewing you know uh uh, high-powered celebrities and and that sort of thing but every once in a while you do get in you kind of work yourself into a corner or uh you ask something that is i think you know is is maybe too personal for them and they kind of shut down a little bit has that happened to you and if it has like how do you kind of work your way out of it as an interviewer it's a it's a really good question, and I thought I was immune to that until David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young uh, came in to promote a uh, documentary that was made about him, <laughs> and uh, then it just blew up in my face. Where uh, it actually got picked up on Howard Stern and elsewhere. Where look, he's he's known to be a erratic, you know, difficult guy, and that was literally you know the documentary that he was there to promote was essentially saying, no, he's turned a page. He's a new man. He's, uh, you know, he's grown. And what I made very clear both to the publicist in advance and to him literally on the air, the first thing when he sat down was like, look, I, I don't, this is, there's going to be some repetition about what is in this documentary because, because it's about your life, obviously. Um, but hopefully, you know, it's okay because we'll titillate people to watch the documentary and it'll give them an idea of what's in there. And, you know, also some people maybe are listening to this who wouldn't have seen the documentary. And he was, Oh, ask me anything, you know, go ahead, go ahead. And, you know, it just, he, I, I don't know if he was off his meds or what, but it was a, it was a disaster from very, he's like, what, you know, don't you know, everyone knows that, or, you know, how, you know, what I, he, everything that we talked about is like, I, and I kept trying to stay calm and cool. And like, you know, David, I'm not sure, you know, some of our listeners are, are younger. I'm trying to politely say like, no, they weren't, you know, yeah. didn't have your poster on the wall in 1961. Right. Uh, so he, it just, and then eventually we, it ended with us screaming at each other and him, he says he walked out. I say I kicked him out, but that was the uh, that was the yeah. end of that one. So, but normally, you know, I think they are. I try my best to make the publicists make it clear to them we are going to go through chronologically. We will get to the project that you most want to promote, but it's going to go chronologically. So, I, I haven't had too many issues along the way. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, and and. Uh, there's there's another angle to your work here that I I'm I'm kind of excited to talk about, uh, and that is the <laughs> brutally honest Oscar ballots. Okay, now I, this is this is this is a um, I'll, I'll let you explain what they are in a second, but I, I I know that some people out there kind of hate this series. I know I know there are some folks out there who think it's you know oh it's it trivializes the whole thing, but I uh, I think that your perspective talking to folks about what they actually think about the movies and people admitting they haven't seen certain things or whatever, I think it's actually really useful to help temper people's understanding of what 
what Oscar season really is, uh, to, to a certain extent. So ex- explain to explain to the listeners what the brutally honest Oscar ballots are, how this came about. I mean, the, you've been doing this for a long time now. I mean, this is a this is a long running series, right? I, I... It, it is. And uh, I, you've always been very nice. I, even before we've you know now met you, I know for each year you you kind of share these. And I, I share your perspective on it that, you know, uh, whatever was it brandeis that said like daylight is the best disinf- i don't remember who said that yeah. but that to me let them uh let people see that this is not the oscars are not you know um uh, somebody going up onto the mountain to come down with tablets that were from wise men who watched every movie and decided these are the ones that truly deserve <laughs> you know these objectively are objectively the human, best yeah. yeah no there's uh, the, the, the academy is comprised of like approximately 10,000 people who many of them are either, it is another lifetime membership thing. So many of them are either very old and some degree out of it or uh, very busy in their careers, active, you know, they're not sitting every day watching a movie to evaluate for Oscar consideration. So, you know, I think the biggest thing that the brutally honest ballot series has shown is that people vote having not seen a ton of movies. Sometimes it could be like having seen only 12 to 15 and that pisses off the people that read this because they're big movie buffs who, you know, make sure to go to theaters and pay to see every movie that could be a contender. And they say, if I can do this and I'm paying and I have to make the effort, you guys get screeners sent to your home. You now have a streaming thing. You can't bother to watch it. And then we have to listen to what you think should win. And I get their frustration, but you know, this, what do we, is, are we going to compel? How do you compel somebody to, to do the right thing. There are some of the, some Academy members who really do. Um, but look, at the end of the day, they're human. And so what we find out when we grant anonymity in return for honesty is that they'll say like, look, I had a fight with this person on a movie 20 years ago and I bleeping hate them. <laughs> and even if they have won every other award this season, I'm not voting for them. Yeah. Uh, so there's something like that that can come up or you'll have somebody literally it caused a, caused a problem because this guy's, uh, professional partner recognized his voice and was not was not happy with him. But he was like, uh, yeah, you know, I didn't see any of the movies in that category, but that poster was effing cool. So I voted for that one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, look, they're they're human beings. I'm not defending that kind of behavior, but it's it's reality. So my feeling is let's just put it out there. A few examples every year. People think, do I go back to the same person every year because they're crazy? A lot of them are crazy you know one person said uh something about i i had i i'm trying to remember i wish i wish first man had been nominated for uh best picture i really liked that one and incidentally i slept with buzz aldrin when he came back and he really was as depressed as they <laughs> showed in the, you know like one of these things like where it's not joking yeah. like there these are people that are in the middle of this business who you know, they each have a, a weird story. Some of them are high profile who we have. Some of them are not, but they all have a vote that counts the same. And, you know, my idea for this, actually, I want to give credit, came from as a kid, I would read Entertainment Weekly's pre-Oscar issue and they would get for just like, you know, short blurbs from like two or three Academy members. And like me, they were not saying this is necessarily reflective of anything beyond mm-hmm. this one person's views, but it, it was interesting to see the thought process of a voter. And sometimes it does tip you off to um, concerns that we out in the regular world might not be aware of, like, you know, uh, the year of Moonlight, 
where that was the shocking winner over La La Land after La La Land was first announced mm-hmm. as the winner, we actually had we did a lot of brutally honest ballots that year, and they were consistently breaking for Moonlight. And we were saying this must be way you know. And again, nobody is ever claiming this is scientifically uh, a scientific right. sample or whatever. But it, when you start having one after the other, we were like, what What is this about? This is kind of interesting. And it didn't, didn't you know, dissuade me enough from not p- – I still picked La La Land and I was wrong. But it, you know, things like that can kind of give – people raise concerns like, you know, um, I'm trying to think of a recent example where, you know – 1917, the movie that a lot of people thought was going to beat Parasite mm-hmm. in 2020. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, you know, it's it's impressive filmmaking, but it, you know, and it's basically shot as one shot. It's made to look like one yeah. shot, but it doesn't really have any heart. So, you know, I would give it technical awards, but I might, do I want to give it best picture? And lo and behold, they give best picture to the movie that does have a lot more heart and is not as technically impressive or whatever, but you know, and the other thing that's a wild card with the uh, that, that makes the Oscars as unpredictable now as ever is they use a, a special kind of ballot, which is just as useless as like probably the primary and caucus system mm-hmm. in politics. That you know, it's called a preferential ballot. So you're asked to rate your preferences for, let's say, best picture. So you rank them one, two, three, four, and the way that it's counted is they look at all right so let's say there were 10 nominees the 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 nominee that had the fewest number 1 ballots they then look at th- that movie is out mm-hmm. and they look at that pile of ballots and they say uh, all right what was number 2 on the ballots for those people so that their voice is not entirely mm-hmm. lost even though they're number 1 and then they put that movie they put that ballot into the pile for the number two and it just becomes like this working backwards to find the movie that is the least objectionable in a way that most people at least like because the thing is when you when you have potentially 10 nominees if you just did a straight vote a movie could win that the majority of voters dislike altogether but a handful really love. so they figured that this is the the best of bad options i'm not sure that they're right to me it seems like same with the with the presidential election. If you get the most votes, I think you probably should win. But yeah. um, but look, neither thing is likely to change. So yeah, yeah, no. The I mean, and it's it's been especially weird since they bumped it up to ten nominees because yes. I know everyone thought like, okay, well, with ten nominees, we'll get more you know more big big movies as winners, and that is not really how it is how it is sh- shaken out at all. I mean, do you think that's you're do you right? Think, do you think that's an issue for the Oscars? I, I I go back and forth on this because on on the one hand, I do think that like okay, you know the the, the they should be rewarding the best movies, and if, if it doesn't need to be a big blockbuster to be the best, it just needs to be the best. On the other hand, it does it does depress interest in the show and and frankly in Hollywood, and this is. This is a this is essentially a trade industry show um, designed to generate interest in the in the product. You Absolutely. know, I mean, do you think I, do you think it's a problem? I, that was that wasn't much of a question. That was more of a comment. Sorry. No, I mean, I, I think it's a it's a great it's a great uh, thing to talk about because look, you know, if a tree falls in a forest and nobody is there, does it make a sound? Like that's basically what the Oscars it, this year more than ever it's going to yeah. be the case because very few people in the real world have seen the movies that are eligible this year uh so and the ratings you know people go on and on about who the host is or how long the show is the ratings absolutely are correlated to 
how much interest people have in the movies that are nominated for the top awards. The most watched shows have been Titanic, Avatar, you know, the years of those. So they're in trouble this year and not just because it's on Zoom, but because nobody uh, has really seen these movies out in the real world. Um, I do think it's a problem. They tried to address it a couple of years ago with a ham handed ham fist or whatever the phrase is idea of we're going to have a popular movie for the best popular yeah Yeah. uh and and i actually you know i I didn't think it was the worst thing because at least you guarantee the presence of those movies at the show but people they chose to introduce it in the year of black panther and so it looked like they were creating basically uh uh, and this is not my word, but it was the people, you know, like a ghettoized category. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have to right. recognize Black Panther in the main category, which I understood that that uh, resistance to. But, you know, they they have competing pressures, the Academy. On the one hand, they've got, you know, obsessive fans and purists and history buffs who say don't change anything. On the other hand, they, like the Golden Globes, are totally financially dependent on their TV deal in their case at at the Oscars with ABC. And if they're not delivering a show that anyone cares about, they are going to lose that deal and then they're screwed totally. And so I think they are really, the way they try to juggle that is, you know, every year they try to bring in the Avengers as the presenters or people like that. But, you know, nobody wants to be invited to somebody else's party if they could have been there, if could have been for them. So it becomes harder and harder. Um, It's also, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's a tough one because, you know, and so part of what they've done, which maybe the HFPA could take a, a page, you know, could learn from is they have brought in a lot of younger members. They, the attention was paid to the fact that they're trying to bring in more diverse members. That's one thing that's important that they're doing. But the other thing is younger people who are just more kind of attuned to what what mm-hmm. is cool these days. And they're hoping that eventually once the out of touch older people die off, it will <laughs> It will, uh, you know, work out well, but it's yeah. going to take a while because these guys hang on there for for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, 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 I want to ask a question here. And if you don't know the answer or you don't or you don't feel comfortable saying then mm-hmm. we will we'll move on. But I, I there there is a lot of money spent by the studios on these these pictures. And like like I say, the show is kind of about the business of Hollywood. And and there is. There is a this is a big expenditure for for some studios, especially for some smaller studios. You know your mm-hmm. neons and whoever. What mm-hmm. what what is the what does a studio spend on an average movie that they think has a legit shot at winning Best Picture? I mean, are we talking about like fifty grand, two hundred grand, I mean, more? I, I I'm I'm honestly curious about this. It it obviously you know it depends on each each movie is different based on how their studio calculates the. Their, their objectives you know some mm-hmm. of them will have a campaign that, you know let's say your movie comes out in December when voting is usually about to get going for nominations it's hard to differentiate what is you know intended to help for the awards sure. versus promotional for the release and so a lot of them will get around it by saying no we were just promoting the release of the movie uh, even though most of that promotion is happening in hotbeds of voters sure. um, so there's that but look no we're talking in some in, in in for the top contenders millions of dollars and in some cases uh more than the movie itself costs to make mm-hmm. um you know that actually happened for the first time just so you realize this is not a new phenomenon in the 50s with the movie marty which was a little independent movie you know ernest borgnine was not exactly a traditional movie star just a you know kind of character actor mm-hmm. but 
the movie took off and at the theaters and they thought, you know what, let's reinvest some of this money in a campaign. And they spent, ended up spending more than they spent on the movie and it won best picture. And then Mm -hmm. the, the reason they all spend something on it is because they're, is some value on the back end if you do well. So it's not just, you know, for bragging rights, although that I'm sure is part of it, but, you know, particularly in the nineties and two thousands, which were not coincidentally when Harvey Weinstein was the king of this stuff, (laughs) it was when, uh, you know, you had the DVD boom. And so if you could put on your DVD that was then going to be a blockbuster or whatever, that you have 10 nominations or three Oscar wins that made it more sellable for, or you could sell those rights for more or to the to, to airplane you know viewing rights or things like that nowadays they will sometimes re-release the movie after the or they'll they'll do a limited release before the the nominations just so that they qualify to be eligible for that and then if they get a bunch of nominations they will open it much more widely on the back of that so um but look the money gets spent on stuff like sending hard copy DVD screeners to 10,000 people mm-hmm. costs money. Um, now they're moving towards eliminating screeners so ne- that next year it'll just be uh, streaming it to the private mm-hmm. members site. But even that the Academy collects a middleman fee that is not, you know, unsubstantial uh, then, you know, billboards and stuff, tr- advertisements for absolutely uh, in trade publications like ours. Um, the reason I can't tell you specific figures though, is because we're, you know, we're very adamant about being as uh, you know, the church and state as possible. Sure. So Fire that it doesn't right, affect. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's no denying it's, it's a huge, uh, ecosystem and to the extent that this year with the pandemic shutting down actual in-person gatherings in in LA you know our a colleague of mine at the Hollywood Reporter did an article this week where and I think it's now online where you look they they went and talked to the t- you know town car services SUV services mm-hmm. uh, hotels um waiters caterers it's like killed people here who their entire year was based around the award season and now it's just gone so it's uh it is a huge part of this town yeah yeah uh well that was pretty much everything i wanted to ask you uh i always like to ask my guests on the show if there was anything i should have asked if there's anything i forgot to ask there's there's what do you think people should know that i foolishly failed to no i thought you did i thought you were you were great i enjoyed it um and i would just say where are are you dc i'm in dallas actually oh in dallas Dallas, okay well uh if you ever Next time you make it out here, let me know. I'll give you a firsthand uh, taste of some of the insanity that that we uh, are subjected to and and happily participate in. It's a it's a weird town, but you know I think it's if you if you approach it with the right attitude, it's kind of a fun beat to cover. You you know if you start believing that you know somebody who's nice to you in an interview, same as in D.C. I would guess yeah. is is your buddy. You know you're an idiot. But if yeah. but if you you can have fun with it if it's uh, if you approach it in the right way. So anyway, I appreciate you having me on and uh, keep up the good work with your your podcast. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Scott. Uh, Scott Feinberg. We are very excited to have him on the show. Check out his uh, podcast awards chatter. Very, very good. Very, very big names. You'll, you will enjoy it. Um, that is all for this week on the Bulwark Coast of Hollywood. I will be back next week with an upper, another episode. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.